open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. And it's always a great privilege for us to open our Bibles here to Matthew's Gospel. And I hope that you understand, I'm sure that you do, when I say Matthew's Gospel, that we're actually talking about the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This, uh, the Bible is God's book, and it was given to explain to us the wonderful plan of salvation that we have in Christ. And whether we're talking about the history of creation in the book of Genesis, or the giving of the law in the book of Exodus, or the conquest of Canaan in the book of Joshua, or if we talk about the prophecies of Isaiah, or if we talk about the... Uh, letters that were written to the churches of Revelation and the end of the Bible, all of this, all that we're talking about here in Scripture is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in particular, Matthew is the gospel of the kingdom. Christ is the king of that kingdom. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And even though there have been many kingdoms in history and there are many powerful nations in the world now, and even though there is another kingdom and that is the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness. And all of these kingdoms have been opposed to Christ, yet we do know that Christ is Lord and King over all. Now, if you would, hold on to Matthew 12 there just just a minute. Keep your finger there and, and go to the back of your Bible to Revelation chapter 19. And there are many passages that we could... Uh, read about the kingship of Christ, but I think this is the one that is just so majestic in its description that there's hardly any better place that we could go than Revelation chapter 19. And I want you to look at this amazing scripture here that begins with verse 11, and this is the event that leads to the kingdom that Christ will one day establish upon the earth. In verse 11 it says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth the sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'd like you to keep this scripture in mind as we look at our text in Matthew today because what we'll see here is the rejection of Revelation chapter 19. And you're going to see people that with as much malice in their hearts as they could muster in full denial of the revelation of the Messiah. They had cold, dead hearts. And they'll even claim that Jesus is not the Savior, but that he is from Satan. He comes from Satan, he has the mind of Satan, that he is one with Satan, and his intention is not to save, but to destroy. Now in Matthew chapter 12, in these verses that we're going to read, they actually lead to one of the most interesting, paradoxical, confusing and debated portions of Scripture in, in, in the entire Bible. And that, that subject is the unpardonable sin. 
Now, we're not going to get far enough today to include that in the message, but we're going to, we're going to get all the details that lead up to us, lead up to it, and, and we'll see here a setup for these stunning statements that Jesus will make in verses 31 and 32. So if you'll stand with me, please, we're going to start reading in Matthew chapter 12, verse number 22. Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, And he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then will he spoil his house? He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to look into your word today. I just pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we consider this subject this morning and open our hearts to what you'd have us to know. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm going to have to ask you to bear with me a little bit. You may be seated. Uh, bear with me just a little bit today. I'm stopped up again and scratchy throat and all of that and trying to get over this. But uh, I'll try to uh, get through the sermon today without too much of an interruption. Well, let's take a moment here, if we could, uh, to get our bearings about where we are in the story of Jesus' life. We've come through the first chapters of Matthew where we talked about the birth of Jesus and how that he was the virgin-born son of Mary. We've seen God's providential care over him as God protected him when wicked King Herod would have killed him when he was a baby. And then we've seen the beginning of Jesus' ministry, which was inaugurated at his baptism. We went on into the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, where Satan would have ended that ministry almost before it began. We've also read the great manifesto of the kingdom of God, and that's the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. We've talked about Jesus' many miracles and how that he single-handedly wiped out disease in every town that he visited. We've seen crowds come to him, people that would throng him, people that uh, were sick that were brought to him, and Jesus compassionately reached out to heal them all. We've seen demons cast out. And also Jesus storm, uh, calmed the storm on a sea. And, and we've even seen Jesus raise people from the dead. We've read about Jesus calling his 12 apostles and how that they would be the ones who would carry on his ministry after he was crucified. He empowered them to preach the gospel. And despite all of these miraculous events that we've read in these first chapters, we're surprised when we come to the beginning of the 11th chapter. And there we find one of Jesus' staunchest allies, John the Baptist, who began to have doubts. 
John the Baptist was the one who said he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus had to deal with the doubt of John and get him back on the right path. And then uh, that, that doubt that John expressed was just the beginning of other doubts and of apathy and criticism that would soon come Jesus' way. And then we arrived at chapter 12, which we've called a crystallizing moment in Jesus' ministry. And here was the real heart of the matter that caused the crucifixion. And that was Jesus' head-on confrontation with the religious leaders over the uh, Sabbath day observance. They said that he was a sinner because he desecrated the Sabbath. And Jesus showed them the truth concerning the Sabbath. He even declared that he was God by saying that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. And he shamed those religious leaders by teaching truth from the Scripture, truths for which they had no argument. And that was a crystallizing moment because from that point, the Pharisees began to plot. They schemed how that they might destroy him. Then we came to this interlude that we talked about for a couple of weeks or three weeks. And that was this oasis in the middle of all of this turmoil as Matthew turns to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah and he quotes prophecy concerning the Messiah. And what we learn from Isaiah is that when Jesus came the first time that he did not come to be the king of Revelation 19. That kingdom would come later because what Jesus came to do in his first advent was to come and die on a cross and he was to live his life as a suffering servant. And it's important for us to remember that because that figures into the confusion about him. And so we turn our attention to this passage in, in which there is a new confrontation with the Pharisees and this one will cause Jesus to pronounce them guilty of committing an unpardonable sin, of, of committing a sin for which they can never be forgiven. And the fact that such a sin could be committed seems to be utterly incongruous with what we know about God, what we know about salvation. But nonetheless, we'll find it here, and that will be the subject of the message next week. So we're looking at what is it that leads up to this? What brings on this charge of blasphemy against Jesus Christ? Now, we'll talk about first then the reason for the occasion. Verse 22 says, Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And we have to ask ourselves when we read this, why is this particular miracle noted by Matthew? Well, there were hundreds of miracles, perhaps even thousands of them that were similar to this. Uh, Jesus was doing miracles all throughout the region of Galilee. So why does Matthew mention this one? Well, he does because this is the one that shows that there is never going to be a change of heart in these people. That we need not expect that the religious leaders will finally come to the point that they realize Jesus is truly the Messiah. It doesn't matter how many miracles that he would do. No matter, no matter how many great acts of God that he would do, they were simply not going to turn to him as the Messiah. And his disciples need not hold out hope that finally there would be a breakthrough and that Jesus would begin his kingdom on the earth at this time. 
So the Jewish leaders were not going to change so that Jesus would later say to his disciples in the 17th chapter, the Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men and they shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised again. And if it hadn't been for Jesus' intent to show us the hardness of their hearts and how that they would commit this unpardonable sin, then we probably never would have known about this particular miracle. But recognizing that, we we really don't want this particular man to be lost in all of that shuffle. Because here is a man who did have a desperate need, and it's another incident that shows the heart of the Savior. So we can lay aside all the other reasons for, for why this miracle is mentioned to us, and we need to concentrate just for a moment at least on this particular man and how that Jesus was so compassionate towards him. And this is an example, again, of that instantaneous, complete healing from the great physician. This is not a dubious healing. It's not like what you find in the faith healing campaigns today. There is no trickery here. This is a verifiable miracle. And that's evidenced by our second observation this morning, which is the reaction of the people. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? So there wasn't a person in the crowd that said, he's a fake. Here is a man, well, he could see, uh, he could speak, he wasn't deaf. We don't know who this guy is that was supposed to be blind. He's just been sneaked in here so that we would think he was blind, and this is a trick. That's not the reaction that you see from the people. No one doubted that a real miracle was performed. And this wasn't like it was an isolated miracle. Jesus had been healing people everywhere. Uh, It wasn't like Jesus had, uh, these are sketchy things, and there's plenty of time here for Jesus to set up his healing line, and so he brings all the people that have bunions on ingrown toenails and brings them to be healed. Oh, Jesus had been to every town and village of Galilee, healing of every sickness. There was proof of his power in any direction that you wanted to turn. Uh, You could scarcely go half a city block and not run into the result of one of Jesus' miracles. So this is another one of his miracles. And this one really just just wowed the crowd because the Bible says here that they were amazed. And we ought not to pass over that too quickly because the word amazed there, that, that really doesn't do justice to the original Greek language here. But it is here uh, that it's not, or it's not that the people are just surprised and they say, well, how about that? I mean, there's another miracle. Isn't that something? No, this means, as Hendrickson says, they were knocked out of their senses. The meaning here is that they just kept going on and on about this. And they said, this is incredible. It's almost too hard for us to believe that such a thing could happen. So this wasn't a blasé reaction of yawning and the people said, guess what? Jesus did another miracle today. No, even with all the miracles that they'd seen, so many great things that they'd seen, there was something about the character of this particular miracle that just flat knocked them out. And that's very important for us to note that no one disputed this. And the people were so amazed that they said, is not this the son of David? And son of David, that, that's a, a common term that they use for the Messiah. Everyone understood that well. They knew what son of David meant. This is, the the son of David is the everlasting successor to Israel's throne. The son of David is that king in Revelation chapter 19. 
And when the people ask this question, they ask it in this manner, could it be the Messiah? And that's kind of interesting because after everything that he did, there was still this element of doubt. They should have said it like the King James indicates. Is there any way that this could not be the Messiah? And right then they should have bowed before him and surrendered to his authority as the king. But there's not that kind of assurance in this statement. They weren't so sure. And it's because they were still of the opinion that when the Messiah came, he would be that king in Revelation chapter 19. But at the same time, there's just a little bit of a glimmer here that they're at least wondering about this. He could be the Messiah, couldn't he? And so they were sort of looking at this with one eye uh, half closed and scratching their heads just a bit because this doesn't add up. They can't explain the miracles that he did and this particular one, but they're not quite willing to put the crown on him yet. But we're seeing progress. There's rousing to consideration. This actually could be the Messiah. Some had said already that he was, and and they believed in him as the Messiah, but not many. Those people were few and far between. And so up to this point, the Pharisees had not overly concerned themselves that the people were turning to him and were going to declare him as the king. But here we see the crowds are buzzing about this miracle, and they're starting to pop the question, could this indeed be the Messiah? And so this becomes a real problem for the leaders. So next we see the rejection of the leaders. This is, this is of no small moment to them because they don't have an answer for it. They can't let this get out of hand. They can't let this mushroom to the point that Jesus is finally exalted as the Messiah. If that happens, it's the end of them. Now they'd already been shamed by Jesus. Already in that matter of the healing of the, of the man on the Sabbath day, Jesus had shamed them. And even worse, going back to the Sermon on the Mount in, in chapters 5 through 7, Jesus already said that their righteousness was not good enough for God. That they, weren't, they didn't have the kind of righteousness that God demands. So at this point, they feel the hold on the people, their, their grasp on them starting to slip away. Their positions of leadership are now in question. That's on the line. And if they don't nip this thing in the bud, as Barney Fife would say, if they didn't nip this thing in the bud, then they were going to be the ones on trial, and they were not going to survive it. So what do they do? Well, they have to have an explanation for the miracles. This was a particularly troubling miracle for them. Here is a blind and deaf man, and, and, and that blindness and deafness and the dumbness was caused by demon possession. And they were all agreed about that. The Pharisees didn't dispute it. They didn't dispute whether the miracle is real. They said they knew a demon had been cast out. And so they have to offer an explanation for it. What do they say? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. So they have to have an explanation for this miracle. Now they have two choices here. Demons are cast out by the power of God, or demons are cast out by the power of Satan. Now that first choice, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Demons are cast out by the power of God. The second choice makes no sense at all. Now hold that thought for just a moment. The Pharisee said, 
And if you remember, in this group of Pharisees, there are also the scribes, those are the lawyers, those are the ones that are really supposed to know in, in details the laws of God. Then you have the Herodians. This is the political party that, that was against Jesus as well. And you see right here their first avenue of attack against Jesus. They said, this fellow, this fellow. And that's said in a very derisive way. And it's said like this, this nobody, this, this guy from that hick town Nazareth, this guy who's a hillbilly redneck, who is this guy? And they say it's something like that. I mean, they were spitting on him, so to speak. They held him in contempt. And then they make an even worse accusation against him. They said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Now, let's take a moment just to get the impact of that statement. They're not saying that Jesus is duped by Satan. They're not saying... Well, Satan got a hold of him and and he was just made to do this. He unwillingly did this. They're not saying, that poor Jesus, I mean, he has a demon as well, just like that old blind man had. That's not what they're saying. They're saying he is intimate with Satan. He is in league with Satan. They're bosom buddies. He and Satan are scheming together to make you think that he's the Messiah. That is some accusation, isn't it? I mean, after all that Jesus had done... They are now into this thing deep. And the reference here is to the old god Baal. That's what, that's what Beelzebub means. This is really some accusation. I mean, they have no explanation for the power. They're not going to say the power is from God, so they choose door number two. This is power that comes from Satan. And they bring up this name Beelzebub. And at that time... That was a word that was in use to describe Satan. It's just another word for Satan. And it's a reference to the old god Baal that you find in the Old Testament. You remember the story how Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? This is the god of Jezebel. This is the god of the Ekronites. And literally translated, Beelzebub means the Lord of the Flies. So by the New Testament times, it was a terrible word of derision. The Jews use it offhandedly to refer to any of, the, any of the false gods of those that were around them. And so they would say it this way. And I, I want you to get this now. Your God is a dung God. Your God is a dung God. Now think about that for a minute. Where, where do flies hang out? Where do flies hang out? You know, when I was growing up, uh, my dad was pastor of a small country church in the hills of Kentucky. Uh, that's where I was saved, at the Ephesus Baptist Church at Chapel Gap, Kentucky, up in the hills. And, and it was a little bitty church. You can come into my office sometime if you like, and I can show you the picture hanging on the wall of the church where I was saved. And when I was growing up, and I'm, gonna you, I'm not going to tell you how long ago that was, but it's quite a while, we were, I was growing up there, and we didn't have restrooms in the church. I mean, it, there was no indoor plumbing, but there were two outhouses that were about 300 feet behind the church, just on the other side of the cemetery. And we're a church that has a cemetery. And so when you had to go, you had to go through the cemetery. And at night, going through the cemetery, that could be a very interesting thing. I mean, there, there weren't any lights, and when you got to the outhouse, there still weren't any lights so it made for some very interesting trips. And, I, and I'll confess that 
in the dark. There were times that I didn't get that far and I anointed a few tombstones on the way. But you imagine for just a moment here, a, um, a hot, humid Kentucky day, 90 degrees, and you have to go to the outhouse. And you get out there, and, and we're not talking about the waste management porta potty either. We're talking about the old shack, the old run-down wooden shack sitting over a pit that someone dug out, you know, 100 years ago or whatever. And these green flies are buzzing all around that outhouse. And they're not there for the recreation. They're there for one thing. And uh, they're, they like what's in the bottom of that outhouse. Now, you're starting to get the picture of what I'm talking about. Uh, this is not dignified, I know, to say from the pulpit, but I want you to get the full idea of what these people said about Jesus. Just get the impact of that. He is a God. Well, he is the dung God, and that's about as derisive as you could get. He's the Lord of the flies. You, you couldn't say much worse than that. And this is what they said about the Savior. Keep that in mind for about a week or so because we are getting ever so close to the unpardonable sin. And so they said, he is a dung god. He works with his old buddy Satan. That's why he's able to cast out demons. And what a terrible thing that that was to say about the loving, compassionate Savior, the one who came into this world to save us from our sins. How bad is that to refer to Jesus that way? And let me just remind you of something, that there, there are many people that, that use Jesus' name in such an irreverent manner. Some of you may say, oh, Jesus. Or you say, oh, Jesus Christ, or something like that. His name is a name of reverence. You use his name only in a reverent manner. And if you don't, then you're not much better than these guys that we're talking about here in the, Old Te- uh, in the New Testament. So, you know, some folks will take Jesus' name and they'll combine it with curse words. I would not want to stand in the shoes of someone at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ or at the great white throne judgment if I wasn't saved, having done that to the name of Jesus. So this is what they say about him. This is their great explanation. He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the dung god, the lord of the flies. Well, next we see the response of Jesus. And we have to move quickly here. I've got 30 minutes of sermon and not enough time to finish it. And Jesus, verse 25 says, and Jesus knew their thoughts. And that's kind of scary. Jesus didn't hear them. He must have been out of earshot because those Pharisees were always out there in the crowd. They're always mixed and mingled with this crowd and they're always, they're whispering. They're spreading it around that Jesus is working by the power of Satan. Jesus didn't hear them say it but he's God. And so he was able to read that cesspool of their minds. And it must have surprised them a bit because Jesus shouted out to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? Oh, they thought that they had two choices. He cast out demons by the power of God, and they're unwilling to admit that, or he cast out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, now how ridiculous is that? Do you think that Satan is so stupid that he fights against himself? What happens if one half of a city gets riled up against the other half? Well, they tear each other up, and that city will not survive. What happens in your home? If the husband and the wife are fighting all of the time and pots and pans are bouncing off of the walls, what will happen? They get a divorce. 
The home is torn apart. That home doesn't stand. What happens when a country gets into a civil war? You take a look at Europe and and see how many countries survived uh, civil wars and ethnic cleansing and all of that. And if we hadn't been separated from Europe by 4,000 miles of ocean when we had our civil war, it would have been very easy for a foreign power to come in and conquer us. And that's because you can't fight the real enemy if you're fighting yourself. And then there's something else to take note of here, and that's the admission that by Jesus that Satan has a kingdom. There are two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And if you're not in God's kingdom by faith in Jesus Christ, then whose kingdom are you in? You see if your deductions are as good as those of the Pharisees. So Jesus says, what a ridiculous charge this is. Satan has enough sense not to destroy his own kingdom. Give him a little bit of credit because outside of God, he is the most intelligent and powerful being in the entire universe. Ezekiel said about him, thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and beauty. That's Satan before the fall. Before he fell, he was the most powerful of all of the angels. So give him some credit for not being stupid. Satan is smart, folks. Satan is smart enough to keep the world blinded to the truth of the gospel of Christ. He's smart enough to keep people living in sin, even though it destroys their lives. He's smart enough to keep a drug user using, smart enough to keep an alcoholic drinking, smart enough to cause people to ruin their own lives and their families. He's smart enough to get people to choose hell over heaven. So give him some credit. He's not dumb enough to destroy his own kingdom. Then Jesus goes on, and he says, If I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. Now you see, the the Jews claimed that they could also cast out demons. This is not an admission by Jesus that they could, but the people thought that they could, and they thought that they could. If you read Acts chapter 19, you'll find there there are some Jewish exorcists in that chapter, and they tried to cast out demons, and the demons just sort of laughed at them when they thought they could do it. But they did claim that they could do it. And, And their exorcisms were not accompanied with the things that Jesus did. It wasn't accompanied by blind people seeing and deaf people being able to hear, dumb people speaking. Jesus is not admitting that they can do this. He's just attacking their their reasoning. Why would they accuse him of dealing with the devil unless they have an axe to grind with him? And they do. That axe is this irrefutable logic. They can't argue with him. They can't take the scriptures and prove anything because he knows the scriptures too well. He's the author of the scriptures. Their axe is that they have to do something to get rid of him or they're going to be left on the dung hill, the dung hill of false and failed religions. And now we see, number five, the rationale for belief. Jesus says, but if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is coming to you. There is no logical reason why Satan would cast himself out. It's absurd to think that way. And so Jesus is laying before the people to think about this. Consider, consider this. What makes sense? If he rules out casting out demons by the power of demons, then what power is left? Well, he has to be casting them out by the power of God. And so if that's true, what does it mean? It means that God's kingdom is here. 
It means that God's kingdom is advancing. Satan is being driven out of the hearts of men. That God is trampling on Satan's kingdom. And he's in the process of gaining that final, ultimate victory that we'll see in Revelation 19. You go back to the 20th verse in this chapter. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. And so here we have a demonstration of God marching on to victory. And if God is going to be victorious, whose side do you want to be on? See, it comes down to a demonstration of the power of God. And the if here is not a maybe so, or it could happen. The if here is actually the case. He is giving a demonstration of the power of God, and the question is, which side will they choose? Then he's not through with the logic on this point. In verse 28, But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is coming to you. Or else, how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man? Then he will spoil his house. Let me ask you something. If you're in bed tonight and you hear a noise downstairs... And you peek down the stairs and there you see some guy's loading up all your furniture and he's putting the TV and your computers and all of your stuff into a van outside. What are you going to do? You're going to come down the steps and say, hey, 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 hold on just a minute, fellow. Hold on. That stuff's heavy. Let me help you. I don't want you to hurt your back. Let me just help you carry this out and we can get this thing done in half the time and I can go back to bed. Well, you're not going to do that. That's not likely to happen. The burglar sees you coming down the steps and you've got your baseball bat in your hand and he's either going to shoot you or he's going to tie you up so that you, you don't bother him. This is what Jesus is saying here. He has come to spoil Satan's house. He's come to deliver captives out of his kingdom and he can't do that unless he first overcomes Satan. He can't do it unless he binds him. And this miracle is a demonstration of that kind of power. And folks, this is what Jesus is busily doing right now in the world, is that he's holding back Satan every time that the gospel is preached. When I stand here to preach the gospel to you, Satan is here to try to snatch that out of your hearing, to take it out of your heart so that you don't act upon what you hear. And what God does, he comes in a demonstration of power through the Holy Spirit and he binds Satan so that you can hear that message and so that you can believe it. It's so that you can be transferred into his kingdom of light. And Jesus will keep doing that and keep doing that until one day he returns and sets up his kingdom and destroys Satan forever. Now let me take you back to Revelation for just a minute, the 20th chapter, and uh, we'll see how that happens. Revelation 20 verse 10 says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now what we're talking about there is Satan's house is spoiled. Satan's house is torn down. Satan's house is destroyed forever. And these Pharisees are just dumb enough to say that Satan and Jesus are in league with each other and that Satan is helping him carry out his furniture. Now, do you get that? We all should understand that. And now Jesus brings them to a point of decision. Verse 30, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. You see what the Pharisees had done here? They had unwittingly 
helped Jesus to delineate one of the steadfast truths of the Bible. And that truth, again, is that there are two kingdoms. And you're either in one kingdom or you are in the other. You are either for Jesus or you are against him. Well, Satan's kingdom, of course, is against the kingdom of God. And every person that is not a believer in Jesus Christ as Savior, as the King, as God, every person that doesn't believe that is in Satan's kingdom. They are against Jesus Christ. What do you think will happen to a person like that? Well, we were looking a moment ago at the king in Revelation 19, and that king is also a judge. And the Bible says that he is going to judge all unbelievers. And that same king of chapter 19 is the judge in chapter 20. There it says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in to the lake of fire. Now I want you to write this as the last blanks on your listening sheet. And that is the reception of the Savior. And this is where you are after hearing a message like this and reading God's word. You have to make a decision about this. And you might say, well, what do you mean I have to make a decision? You don't have the power. You don't have the authority to tell me I need to make a decision. I don't, but Jesus does. You see, you came here today and God put you in the place where he wants you to be. And now you're going to have to say, this is the truth, that this is the word of God, that Jesus is the Christ. And he says, you're either for me or against me. This is what he said. You have to make a decision here. There's no wiggle room. There's no middle ground. You either leave in belief or in unbelief. Now, you might leave here in confusion, but I don't think that I've been that vague. But lest I overestimate my ability to explain the word of God, let me state it to you very simply. The Bible says that all of us have sinned, that there's none of us that's perfect. All of us have broken God's commandments. And it says because of that, we are all condemned to suffer the punishment of God for doing so. But the Bible also says that God has provided a way of escape. And that way of escape is by faith in Jesus Christ, the one who came to pay the penalty for our sins. And Jesus did that by taking our sins on the cross and being punished in our place. And if you believe that Jesus did that for you, then the Bible says that you can be saved from your sins and today you can be on your way to heaven. That's the choice that you make. You either believe this or you don't. There's no middle ground in this. He says, if you're not for me, you are against me. And so really it comes down to this decision. Are you with the Pharisees or are you with Jesus? Are you saying, he's the dung God? He's the dung God? He's not worth believing in? Or are you saying he's the Savior? Is he Satan or is he the Savior? That's the choice that every person has to make. And I pray to God you make the right choice, that you recognize who Jesus is.
Let us pray. Father, we thank you for what we read today and studied. And maybe it's not the type of sermon that most people expect to hear, but we're in a progression here to learn what the Word of God says and why there are certain conclusions that are drawn and why that there are certain decisions that have to be made. It's, it's all summed up in the stories here that we read from the Bible. So, Lord, help us to get what we should from this, and that is there are choices to be made as to whether Jesus is the Savior or is he not. And every person that remains in unbelief remains in the kingdom of darkness and is headed for that awful place called hell. Lord, I just pray that you would speak to someone's heart today. Help them to realize that there is no good that can come out of rejection of Christ. The choice has to be made, and the right one is to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. Draw Christians close to you. Bless them, Lord. Help us to tell others about this story. People are going to die, and and that's inevitable. The Word of God says this, and they're headed for one place or the other, either heaven or hell. So help, them, help us to give them the truth so they'll know Jesus is Savior. Bless as we sing today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.